You are listening to Resurrection Indiana. To find out more about our meeting times and location, check us out on Facebook or Instagram, or visit our website at resurrectionindiana.org. So we're going to begin talking about verse 25, and Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. I'm being honest with you, we could spend a couple months talking about what he's meaning there. But I will just tell you that the figures of speech that he's talking about are the parables that he's been teaching through in the Gospel of John. And because Jesus has been teaching in these parables, it begs the question, why does he teach in the form of parables? It would certainly be a lot easier if Jesus just told his disciples the things that they needed to know. And I don't have time to go through all of why he taught in those parables, but I will just simply tell you that Jesus taught in parables to intentionally veil some of the things that he was teaching so that not everyone who heard the words that he said were able to completely understand the things that he was trying to teach. There are a ton of reasons why Jesus would veil the things that he was teaching so that not everyone could understand. I don't have time to talk about all of them, but if you just look at the disciples, there was two reasons why they could not yet understand everything that Jesus was trying to teach them. You see, the first of those two reasons is that the Old Testament prophecies make it very clear that when the Christ dies, he was going to die alone, friendless and rejected by the entire world. And if the disciples completely understood everything that Jesus was teaching them, they would not have left him alone when he went to the cross. But in the plan of God for all eternity, he had to go to the cross alone. So he partially veiled his teaching unto them for that reason. But the second reason is what God was going to do in the hearts of the disciples. You see, these men were going to be the giants of the New Testament church. They were going to be the apostles to the Gentiles and to the rest of the known world. That's a hard task. And if these men were to completely understand everything that Jesus was teaching, undoubtedly their hearts would be puffed up and they would be filled with pride. And the giants of the New Testament church could not be men that were filled with pride. Because the servants of God are always broken sinners that have been saved by the grace of God. So they could not yet fully understand the things that Jesus was teaching them. But Jesus continues to speak. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. He's talking about a time coming very soon where after the resurrection and after the ascension into heaven, Jesus would pour his spirit out in Pentecost in an incredible way, and people would be able to understand all of the things that he's been teaching. As you look through the Gospel of John, you find in so many places when John puts a little note in, we didn't understand what was going on then, but after he was risen, we did understand what he was talking about. And he's also partially talking about a day coming very soon, which we all who love Christ long for, when we will be in his presence and we will commune with him face to face with eyes that are no longer hindered by sin, but perfected ones. And we can talk to Christ face to face and we will understand all of the things that he wants to teach to us. And he explains why these things are. He says, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. You see, brothers and sisters, these disciples are men who are loved by God. It's easy for us to think about these men as the giants of the New Testament church, the men who would start these churches and plant them and minister them and how they would be persecuted for the sake of the gospel and think that they're 
some kind of other level of spirituality that makes them more lovable. But you remember what they're going to do before even the next two days are over, don't you? These are sinful men who are going to abandon the Christ. They're just like me and you. They're weak. They don't understand what Jesus is teaching. Their faith isn't proper. Think of all of the examples you can think in the Gospels of times when these men fell. And yet they were men that Jesus states are loved by God. And there's only one possible way that any sinful man can be loved by God. The only way that any sinner can be loved by God is if the Father loves you. Because you have loved the Son and have believed that the Son came from God. Brother and sister, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to forgive your sins, you most assuredly have been forgiven of your sins. You recognize Jesus taught this truth before they all abandoned him. He knows what they were going to do, and he loved them knowing full well what they were going to do. But as I said, I'm not come to teach fully on this text, so I'm going to try and make some more progress. Jesus teaches this wonderful truth, and it is a beautiful truth, and you could spend a long time teaching on it, but we need to look at the disciples' response. And when you look at the disciples' response in verse 29 and 30, you can almost read it and say, yeah, that's right, so look at it with me. It says that they said, his disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why I believe you've come from God. And we almost want to say, absolutely, Jesus does know everything and he's taught us everything that the Father has given him. And that's a great reason to be believing in God, isn't it? But if you look closer into what the disciples are saying, you can see two things from their response. The first thing is that they actually understand what Jesus is teaching for once. You see, when you look at the rest of the Gospel of John, you find a stark contrast as to what normally happens when Jesus teaches. You see, there's this pattern. Jesus will do a miracle. A crowd will show up. He'll teach the crowd. And in part of that teaching, it'll be in parables. And it'll kind of look like this. Jesus is teaching the crowds over here, and he gives a parable, and the disciples stand beside him and go, oh, that is really profound. And then they go back home, and the disciples come up to Jesus, and they say, okay, Jesus, that was um, a really profound teaching. I really liked it. I thought it was insightful, and it was good. Um, But Thomas, he's kind of fuzzy on what you meant by that. Would you mind explaining it again to Thomas in front of the rest of us, just so he can understand what you're teaching, right? And there's a reason because of that. It's not that the disciples weren't smart enough to understand what Jesus was teaching. It's not that they were, they were stupid or something like that. The reason that they couldn't understand is that understanding anything of the things of God is a gift of God. You can't well up inside of you understanding of who God is. It has to be given you by the, fa- by the Father on high. And this is the one time they actually understand what Jesus is saying, or at least one of the times. And the second thing you see out of the disciples here is the pride that I would just mention. You see, even though they've spent much of the past three years completely blind to the things that Jesus was trying to teach them, they see one thing. And in these verses, they claim that their faith is based on the fact that they understand something Jesus is teaching. What you're finding out here is that they think they've become of the fold because of something they've welled up inside of themselves. And what you're seeing is that they've taken a gift that Jesus has given them and they have turned it into an idol in their own lives. 
what you're seeing is that little bit of works-based righteousness is starting to well up inside of them again. And you can disagree with me on my reading of those two verses, but I think the next verses make it clear that that's actually what Jesus is trying to teach. So look with me at Jesus' rebuke to them in verses 30 and 32. Sorry, 31 and 32. Jesus begins by answering them. Jesus said to them, Do you now believe? As if to say, So you think you're of the fold because you've mentally understood one of the things that I've been trying to teach to you. You think you've become one of my children based on your own works, based on your own wisdom, based on your own strength. Well, guess what? If you're trusting in your own strength, you're trusting in your own wisdom, you're trusting in the faith that you've welled up inside of yourself. Hear these words. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. You who see yourself as a giant, you who see yourself as so strong of the faith as you've begun to trust in your own goodness. You're going to leave me completely and utterly alone. And the only reason you're with me to begin with is because I have loved you. You see, Jesus looked at his disciples and he knows what's going on in their hearts, just as he knows all of us. And he sees that even for our almost good reason, they've begun to trust in themselves and they've begun to place their hope on their own faith. And they've forgotten that the only reason they're loved is because God the Father has loved them and he sent God the Son to be punished for their sins and that God the Holy Spirit has become indwelled in their hearts and that he is applying the work of God the Son to their account so that their sins would be forgiven. They've begun to trust on something else and Jesus shatters that trust in themselves. But do you hear the words almost echoing Jesus' words to Peter after he makes his great profession? And Jesus has to tell Peter, he says, Peter, Satan would have you and sift you like wheat. If I left you alone, he would sift you like wheat and he would have his way with you. But I have prayed for you. See, Jesus is correcting his disciples here. He's not cursing some pagans. Look at what he continues to say after that in verse 32. He says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Yes, though all of his earthly friends would leave him and stab him in the back and betray him and leave him forsaken as he goes to the cross, even to curse his name out to a little slave girl. The God, the Father, loves him with such a great love that he would not leave nor forsake him for even a moment. And that's something the disciples are going to need to know. Because very shortly, even now, they're beginning to feel the shame of having their trust on their works exposed. But very shortly after that, they're going to be overcome by an unbelievable amount of shame for abandoning their best friend and the high king of heaven during the greatest moment of all of human history. But Jesus is such a good shepherd and loves them with such a great love that he teaches them this truth before they abandon him, telling them already that he was never alone, even though they're going to feel responsible for him being alone because he loves them. And he chose to love them before they betrayed him. And he chose to love them before they betrayed him, knowing that they would betray him. Simply because he had that great love for them. Now we're finally starting to get to what I've come to preach to you today. I know it's been a lot. He says in verse 33, I have said these things to you 
that in me you may have peace. You see, the disciples need to know these truths because for three days it's going to look as though sin and Satan and the powers of the world had won. As he hung on the cross and as the Savior of the world was dead and in the grave for three days. But even more so, this is the very reason why Christ came into the world. We just finished celebrating the Advent and the Christmas season. That Jesus would choose to leave the presence of God in the heavenlies and all the goodness that is found there and enter in the world that we live in. To take on a human form, to have to eat food, to have to rest, to have to learn, to have to deal with all of the things that hurt. This is the reason why he has come, so that we who do not have peace with God on our own could have peace with God. As he is punished for our sins and the enmity between God and us is erased. But even more than that, Jesus doesn't just want his disciples to have peace with God in their souls, but he wants us to have peace in the very depths of our being because he desires that his servants would have peace. So he continues to teach. This may be one of the most important points in my mind out of this whole text. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. You see, these men are about to undergo the greatest crisis of all of human history. The very high king of kings is going to be crucified and killed by the wicked Romans and the wicked religious rulers of the day. But even once that event is over, their lives are going to continue to be full, ones that are full of pain and misery. Think of even just the Apostle Paul's life. Beaten, ashamed, hungry, cold, every day, day in and day out, full of misery and pain. And every one of these men, except for one, is going to die a martyr's death. Their lives are going to be full of pain. Job speaks truthfully in his book when he says that man is born for trouble as sparks fly upwards. And you need to know that your life is going to be full of tribulation. But Jesus continues, he says, but take heart. If you look at these words, they basically mean be of good cheer, take heart, cheer up, face it well. You see, before these men are about to stab him in the back in the greatest betrayal of all of human history, he commands them that they would cheer up. What a thing to do. I most certainly know that I would never do something like that. In this moment of history that is so pregnant with pain and suffering, he commands his disciples to be of good cheer. How can you not ask the question, how could this be? Luckily for us, Jesus continues to answer it. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You see, it will look as though Satan and the powers of this world has won as Jesus hang on the cross. But as Jesus hangs on the cross, what is being poured out upon him is all of the wrath that is due you for your sins. And in his death on the cross that looks like defeat, there is actually victory. He defeats the devil in all of his schemes. He defeats the power of the world. He defeats sin itself. And his resurrection stands to prove that in his death, even man's greatest enemy, death itself, is no match for the high king of kings. Jesus in his death has done the unthinkable, overcoming the world and everything in it that may possibly cause his disciples to be afraid. 
And in Jesus' death and resurrection, there is no sting left in death. This is the very thing that separates us from every other religion, every other people group, and everything else. The fact that Christ has overcome the world changes everything about our lives. And to those who love him, it is the sheer fact that we base our entire existence on. No wisdom, no strength of faith, nothing in and of ourselves, but that Christ has overcome the world. You see, you have to understand these twin truths to live the lives that Jesus is calling us to live. You see, he desires that our souls would have peace, and he died so that we would have peace with God. But he longs that we would have peace as we live our daily lives. You have to know these twin truths, that in this life you will have tribulation, and that Christ has overcome the world so that you can fulfill the command to be of good cheer. You see, that command to be of good cheer wasn't just given to the disciples, but it's also given to all of us. You see, because, because to be a disciple of Christ means to love Christ, and to love Christ means to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit means to abound in the fruits of the Holy Spirit, and to abound in the fruits of the Holy Spirit means to abound in joy. So those who love Christ are meant to be filled with joy. But what you need to know is that Jesus isn't calling his disciples to be emotionally happy all the time. There's a difference between being filled with joy and being happy. Because we face things that are hard, we're not always going to be thrilled and happy. That's what the Stoics do. They walk through life and they act like nothing hurts, even though it clearly does. Christ tells you that you're going to face tribulation because he knows that you will and you need to accept it. Because the followers of Christ are those who are commanded to be filled with a basic predisposition towards joy. And we can and ought to have that because Christ in his death has overcome this world and everything that we face is completely worth it. As we labor for the kingdom and as the Lord uses even the circumstances you, brother and sister, are facing right now to make you more into what he would have you to be for all eternity. I have some stuff written down here, but I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that the first time that I preached this sermon was a couple months ago. Um, and when I preached it, uh, it was um, by God's grace right after we found out that our pastor um, was diagnosed with cancer. And as I stand before you today, my pastor's associate pastor is preaching his last sermon before he goes in for another extensive cancer treatment. So both of the pastors of Pioneer who are beloved by all of us are facing diagnoses that may very well lead to the end of their lives. It is so easy when we pray for our pastors and those whom we love to be filled with despair and to be overcome by the dread of the troubles that we face. But when we pray for Pastor Kenyon, we pray for Jack, we don't pray that God would just save them by any means necessary. And we aren't overcome by fear and dread, not because we don't love our pastors, but because we know that in Christ's death, he's overcome all of his and our enemies. And that the worst possible outcome of these two pastors' struggles with cancer is that they would go home to be with their father that they would get to live and breathe in his presence, that they would finally get to worship him as they were created to worship him, unhindered by the sin of our tongues and the sins of our eyes. That's the worst possible outcome. Isn't that a beautiful truth? Don't you see why we need to know that Christ has overcome the world? 
Because we can face anything, and we must face anything that we face, knowing that he has overcome the world, and that we can be of good cheer. I told you that I was going to predict your future, and I'm about to, and I'm sorry. I don't know any of you. I don't know what you do for work. I barely know how many kids you have. I don't know where you go to school. But I know for a fact that in the next 365 days of your life, you're going to face serious tribulation. I don't know what it'll be. But I'm willing to bet some of you will get a diagnosis that's going to crush you. I'm willing to bet some of you are going to have some serious troubles at your job. I'm willing to bet some of you young people are going to fail at your endeavors in sports. I'm willing to bet that many of you are going to face mental demons and mental health struggles that are going to crush you. And I'm sure for a fact that many of you are going to face real unmet longing for real good things that you think God should be giving you. I'm talking about things like a spouse and children and good things that God has not yet given you. And when you face those tribulations in this year, you need to face them like one who loves God. And one who loves God doesn't walk into trials and say, this doesn't hurt. You say, my Lord and my God, I'm undone by this thing. Because we have a great high priest who lives li lived a life like us. And he understands what it was like to struggle in this world. We're called to pour our hearts out to this great high priest. And he has promised that to those who love him, he will comfort us. And just as surely as he will comfort you now, if any of you were to meet the end of your life this calendar year, just as surely as he will comfort you now, he will be waiting at the front doors of his kingdoms with open arms to draw you into his embrace and to draw you into the rest of eternity. Will you pray with me one more time?